Luke chapter 11 is where I'll be today. I want to start with verse 1. Luke 11, verse 1 says this, And it came about that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, Jesus was praying in a certain place after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John the Baptist taught his disciples to pray. Now, I find this to be a very interesting question that the disciples would ask Jesus after being around him for a period of time. Teach us to pray, not teach us to sing, not teach us to preach, not teach us to do evangelism. Teach us to pray. So the question has to be posed, did the disciples pray? Had the disciples ever prayed? Did the disciples even have a concept of prayer? And if so, why did they need to pray when they had Jesus, a.k.a. God in flesh, with them? What is prayer? Did they have a concept? Did they have any understanding? So here's what you got to know. Prayer was a natural and regular and necessary part of the Jewish life. Prayer was a huge part in a Jewish person's life. Now, many believe that these Jewish people prayed at least two times a day, and even the devout would pray at least three times a day. Acts chapter 3, verse 1, we read that Peter and John went to the temple at the hour of prayer at 3 p.m., So we know that prayer took place. We know that these guys were affiliated or acquainted with prayer. Daniel chapter 6, when Daniel is uh, under scrutiny, the Bible says that Daniel would continue to go up to his chambers and open the windows toward Jerusalem, and he disregarded the king's orders by continuing to pray morning, noon, and night. So prayer wasn't a foreign concept to these guys. Here's what you got to know. In the first century, and this is important, in the first century, Jews were expected to pray several prayers. If you study it, many believe they had up to 18 prayers that they had memorized that they could recite. Now, we don't find that to be probably foreign because of the Jews, all it was about was repetition at times. Even the Ten Commandments that God gives to Moses to share with the people was added to by the Jews and had become about 613 commands. So the Jews, whatever was worth doing was worth overdoing. Make sense? And so they had these multiple uh, prayers that they would pray, but the first prayer they would pray repeatedly was a prayer called the Shema. And the Shema was huge to the Jew. And the prayer started like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And they would pray that minimally three times a day. The Shema to the Jew was the bedrock of their prayer life. It was that linchpin, the strong prayer that they would pray. Hear, O Israel... And it's found in Deuteronomy and Numbers and other places. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Love him with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. 
anything, anything that becomes a, a spiritual discipline or a spiritual practice for us, even if it starts with great interest and even good intention, can become a routine and a ritual if we're not careful. So it loses, it loses some of the dynamic. I remember when I first came to faith in Christ, I was like, man, I, I, I want to do a quiet time. I don't know how to do a quiet time. I want to have this like prayer time. I don't know how to do a prayer time. And someone said, you need to pray the Acts model. And I'm like, what is the Acts model? And they're like, you need to spend time with ACTS, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. So I had my little journal and every day I would write out, Adoration, what am I thankful for? Confession, what's jacked up in me, which was plenty. Thanksgiving, what are you thankful for? And supplication, who else am I interceding for? But after a period of time, it became nothing more than just a ritual and a routine that I was trying to fill in the blanks. So teach us to pray. It was commonplace in that society that a rabbi would come alongside his Talmud's disciples and give them prayers. But Jesus does something like way different. Instead of giving them just a prayer to pray or something to say or just something to recite, he looks and basically says, I'm not into your meaningless rituals and your empty talk, I want your heart. So he gives them a model. He gives them something more of a model to say. Did anybody ever learn this prayer way back? I remember in high school learning this prayer, lost as a midget in a cornfield, we would get together before a basketball game, before a high school baseball game, and we would get together and it's like, all right guys, let's go. And I'm lost, I'm a pagan, I'm a heathen, I am a hell raiser. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our sins and debts as we also forgive those who have sin and debts against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and glory forever. Amen. I used to say that. Our father, he wasn't my father. I didn't know him. People will say, we're all God's children. Hmm, think again. We're all God's creation, but you only become a child through faith and repentance. I wasn't able to call him our father. I didn't know him as Abba, Papa, Daddy. And then we would say, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I had no clue of what holiness was because I was a polluted mess. Come on. And I remember saying that. I, I remember getting to the part where it would be like, thy will be done. I didn't want his will done because it meant my will had to be lost. I loved cash money. And I wanted to promote Tim's agenda. Lead us not into temptation. No, I was into temptation. It became nothing more than a recited Prayer that had absolutely zero weight to it. You ever done anything like that? Man, I've memorized this. We can do it with scripture. We can do it with songs. We can do it with so many things. So Jesus gives them a model and what he emphasizes is this relational intimacy with God and this relational 
intimacy with others. If you study the prayer, that's what it hinges on. Much like the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments, when you study them, or the Ten Protections from God, is all about our vertical relationship with God and about our horizontal relationship with others. I mean, even when he says there in the Ten Commandments, uh, no other gods, no idols, no misusing, don't carry my name around in vain, keep the Sabbath holy, it's all about our relationship with God. But then it's about our relationship with others, honor your parents, no killing, no committing adultery, murder, no stealing, no coveting. It's about our relationship with others. So John Crossan in his book, The Greatest Prayer, John Crossan kind of took this model prayer and he made some observations and I found them very fascinating as I read through them this week. He said, the Lord's Prayer is Christianity's greatest prayer, but it's also Christianity's strangest prayer. He said, think about it. The Catholics call it our Father. We call it the model prayer or the disciples' prayer. We believe the Lord's prayer is in John 17, where he prays, Father, make them one as you and I are one. He's praying for the purity of unity and holiness. That's the Lord's prayer, the model disciple prayer. But listen to what he goes on to say. He said, it's prayed by all Christians. But it doesn't mention Christ. It's prayed by all churches, but it doesn't mention church. It's called the Lord's Prayer, and it doesn't even mention the Lord. It's prayed by conservative fundamentalists, but it never mentions the inspired inerrancy of the Bible. It never mentions the virgin birth, the miracles, the atoning death, or the bodily resurrection. He's like, it's prayed by evangelicals, but it doesn't mention the gospel. And it's prayed by Pentecostals, but it never mentions the Holy Spirit. It's a very interesting prayer. And and why would he give the details or why would he give the principles in this prayer to his guys? I want to get to that. So Jesus, before he says, this is how you should pray, he starts by saying, this is how you shouldn't pray. Now, Matthew chapter 6, Eugene Peterson in the message, I love the way he captures it. If you never read out of the message translation from Peterson, it's a fun, fun uh, read. He's a a professor at Regent uh, Bible College up in Vancouver. Peterson is a very sharp guy, uh, very respected amongst evangelicals. So he's kind of written his own little uh, flavor as a newer version of the Bible. But listen to what he says, talking about how you shouldn't pray. Verse 5 of Matthew 6, when you come before the Father, don't turn prayer into a theatrical production. All these people making a regular show out of their prayers, hoping for stardom, do you think that God sits in a box seat? This is what he's saying. Prayer is about intimacy with God. Prayer is not a show. What he's saying is prayer is a heart issue. It's not a word issue. And I think a lot of us get hung up on we don't have enough theological terminology and enough seminary classes that qualify us to pray. That's a fallacy of reasoning. He says, do you think God's in a box seat and he's going to grade your performance? You think he's buying a ticket to see what you're about to do? So he says, hey, hey, let me tell you what not to do. Well, there's some other interesting things in this because when you study it, 
There's a lot of things that are not mentioned in this prayer. Let me read some of them. He doesn't tell us how to pray, meaning the best position to be in when we pray. You can study throughout the pages of Scripture. Genesis 24, they were standing. Exodus 34, bowed down. Judges 20, they were sitting. 1 Kings 18, they had their heads between their knees. Daniel 6, he was facing the temple. Mark 1, he says he was kneeling. Uh, Matthew 26, he was face down. So a lot of people say, should I bow my heads and close my eyes? And should I fold my hands? And should... he, he doesn't address that. Are you standing? Are you running? Are you seated? That's not addressed in this prayer. He doesn't even talk about where to pray. When you study the scripture, Acts 9 says they were praying in their home. Psalm 63 says while in bed. Acts 10 says they were on the rooftop of the house. Acts 16, jailhouse rock. When that breaks loose, they were in prison. Matthew 26, they were in a garden. First Kings says they were in God's house or the temple. But Timothy writes, pray everywhere. So I think a lot of times we get so hung up on, now what is the posture of my body to be when I approach God? And what he drives home repeatedly is, it is the posture of your heart. It's your heart. <laughs> if your heart's jacked up, man, it doesn't matter. But if your heart's right when you approach him, it matters. He doesn't even say when to pray. Like, when's the best time? First Kings says they prayed in the evenings. Mark 1 said early in the morning. Psalm 4 said at bedtime. Matthew 14 said at mealtime. Uh, Jeremiah 3 says pray in your youth. Second Kings 19 says pray in the time of your trouble. First Thessalonians 5, 17, Paul says, pray always. Really? What are you saying? The new covenant ushered in, pray everywhere, pray always, never stop talking to the Father. It doesn't say why you should pray. I mean, you start to study the scripture, it says some prayed while they were crying, Hebrews 5. Others while they were fasting in Deuteronomy. Some while making a sacrifice in Psalms. Some while groaning. Some with a broken heart throughout Psalms. It's like... When, when should I pray and how should I pray and where should I? Just talk to him. He loves you. So that's what he says here. When you come before God, don't worry about your terminology. Don't worry about your vocabulary of seminary terms. Did you ever do that? Like your first introduction to the church and you would sit there and they're like, we're going to ask Brother Charles to pray today. Shall we pray? I'm not making fun of the dude, but I'm just sitting there going, is that really the way you talk? Well, our Lord and our God, as we bow before you today in the presence of the Almighty, we beseech you. I don't even use that kind of wording. Do you? I'm not dogging it, but I'm just saying, man. So Nick and I were talking the other day, and Mickey, we were sitting in my office, and he said, you know what I think prayer is? Prayer's like, Receiving a phone call from somebody close to you. Right? And, and so we're talking about this. And we're about five minutes into the conversation. And all of a sudden my cell phone rings. And I'm like, hold on. So if my kids or my wife calls, if it's not like a, just a real crucial kind of meeting going on, I'm like, hold on. So I pick it up and I'm like, Benji, what's up? Hey, what's happening? I'm meeting with Nick and with Mickey. 
You know what he said? All right, Dad, I see you're busy. I'll call you later. He goes, all right, cool. Let me tell you what's happening. And he starts to tell me about his rehab and what's going on, etc. And about three minutes later, I said, that's cool. Can, can we catch up later on? Why did he do that? He didn't call, say, hey, Father, Son of the Almighty Creator, I beseech you that I have permission to approach you to talk to you about what happened in my day today. In the midst of your busyness, I know you have other people that probably need your time more than I do. How many people say that when they pray? No, that sounds crazy. And people will say that. My buddy Smith called me the other day and he goes, all right, I got a confession to make. I'm like, I talked to you in two months. This ought to be good. I said, what's up? And he goes, I want to apologize and repent. He said, let me tell you why I haven't called you. I said, all right. I haven't called you because I reasoned that you're too busy and you probably ain't got time for me. He said, I just want to tell you that's a lie from hell. The reason I hadn't called is I just didn't call. <laughs> Let me tell you why I haven't prayed like I should lately. <laughs> no, I can't wait to hear this answer. Because I'm thinking sorry and I really don't trust God and believe in God and I just didn't want to talk to him. Come on. So we make time, and our conversation was, what's up, buddy? How you doing? What's happening? And we talk. When we approach God, God already, let me, let, me, let me give you a secret. God already knows what's up. Come on. All right, I'm going to get away, and I need to really seek God on this one. He already knows what's up. But when I start to own what's up. Now, is he holy? Yes. Yes. But he says, when you come to me, don't make it this theatrical production. Don't think I'm over there in a box seat going to applaud your performance. Listen to what he goes on to say. Here's what I want you to do. Verse 6. I want you to find a quiet, secluded place so that you won't be tempted to role play before God. Which means, oh, here's what I want you to do. Get in a secluded place, a quiet place, where you don't come with your formulas and you don't come with all these premeditated words you're going to use. Get in a place where you can emotionally and mentally and spiritually and soulistically get naked before God, unclothed, and get raw. The focus will shift from you, it will shift to God, and you'll start to sense his grace. Some of the best prayer time you have is when it's you. You've unplugged. You get away. And you're not trying to sound like you're some pious believer. (laughs) Listen to what he says. The world is full of so-called prayer warriors who are really prayer ignorant. They're full of formulas and programs and advice. They peddle techniques all about you getting what you want from God. Don't fall for that nonsense. This is your father you're dealing with, and he knows better than you what you really need. The message goes on to say, with a God like this, you can pray something very simply like this. Our Father in heaven, reveal who you are. 
Set the world right. Do what's best as beloved. So below, keep us alive with three square meals. Give us your forgiveness and help us to keep forgiving others. Keep us safe from ourselves and the devil. You're in charge. You can do anything. Now back to the New American Standard and the ESV. Back to the wording. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thine is the kingdom and the power and glory forever. Amen. I want to give you seven simple principles. I want to wrap it. Okay? Seven simple ones. The, this is the model prayer. This is a prayer for the disciples, but it's a model. It's not say it word for word. We've already broke that down. First thing I want you to see is the relationship in this prayer. He says, when you pray, say, our father, our father, which means that you're but one member of a corporate body and there's a lot of other people that make up the body, but you've got now permission to call him our father. Again, he didn't call the other day and say, our father, the father of Rachel and Benji and Jesse and Hannah and Caleb. Dad, what's up? What's up, buddy? How you hanging? Our father, Jesus lays this model out, knowing that within two years, he's going to walk the Via Della Rosa and be crucified, that the veil of the temple would be torn, and that Gentiles and Samaritans and the misfits would get to call him our father. White and black and brown and red would get to call him our father. So he's laying out and establishing a precedence that it's just not for you who come from a Jewish lineage. You can call him our father. You can call him Papa and, and, and Daddy and, and Abba. Ephesians 1 verse 4 says this, he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we would be holy. In love, he has predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus according to his will. How did you get in to call him our father? I was adopted through my big brother Jesus's sacrifice on Calvary and because of my faith and trust in him and repentance, he says I get to call him daddy now. Papa. Now some of us come in here with a lot of jacked up views of what Papa and Daddy and Abba really mean. Some of us have been betrayed and rejected and hurt and so this whole concept of father, man, is one that, that creates more pain than pleasure. But I would highly encourage you to get an accurate view of who the father is, who God truly is. As A.W. Tozier said, your image and concept of God is the most crucial image and concept you'll ever have. Why? Because more often than not, we worship the God of our image the God of our perception even more than we worship the true God. And so we've got to get this understanding that he is a relational God. He invites us to relationship with him. A relationship. It's the thrill of life. Second thing. Listen to what he says. Hallowed be thy name. This deals with the reverence of who he is. The reverence of who he is. The word hallowed or holy means perfect purity, 
perfect purity, no stain, no blemish, no imperfection. Now, now listen, listen. So he says, when you pray, call him our Father who art in heaven, but he's holy. One of my fundamental problems with all the chaos over the last days and weeks has been this. Hashtag love wins. Hashtag love wins. When you slander the holiness of God and hashtag love wins, what you've done is you have absolutely violated what agape is all about. True, authentic agape love springs out of the heart of the holiness of God. So when you see people talk about it's all love. No, 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 you cannot... Elevate the attribute that you feel that you most like. If we're going to talk about love, we've got to talk about what God hates, what things are detestable to God. The scripture mentions a lot of those. If we're going to talk about the grace of God, we've also got to talk about the things of God in there as well, of holiness and purity. So some people, when all this noise starts to happen... It's just about love. No, it's not just about love. Love is crucial. Love is the thread. But we answer to a holy God. And for so many people, they have prostituted the holiness of God for the sake of temporal pleasure and want somebody to endorse it. That's not love. That is a skewed version of love. You can't go there. Make sense? Makes sense. And so when you see this, and he says, when you pray, pray, hallowed be your name. Holy is your name. Holy is your character. Holy is who you are. Isaiah says, man, I saw it. The cherubim and the seraphim were flying around singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Isaiah would say, man, I saw how perfect and pure this God was. Revelation chapter 4. It says, man, they're gathered around the throne and day and night they're singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. He is holy. And sin can't stand in the presence. Even when Jesus is crucified, why did God the Father turn his back on his son? Because it was all of the wickedness and sin and all of the transgression of mankind. Can't look at it. Because sin can't stand in the presence of God. Why did the priest have to dress a certain way when they went into the Holy of Holies and to offer incense in prayer? Why would they tie a rope around their leg when they went in? Because if there was any sin, they would be smoked in the presence of God. But nobody could go in after them. They would have to drag them back out because you're in the presence of holiness. Come on. So he says, when you pray, call him our father. He's a good, good father. He's papa. He's daddy. He's intimate. He's a relational God. But, but when you go before him, realize he's a holy God. He's a holy God. Don't violate his holiness. And then you get to the resignation in this prayer. The resignation is when you get to say, thy kingdom come. Which means you realize that you are subjected to his sovereign will. Yes, our God reigns, but when you say, thy will be done, thy kingdom come, we want what you want to happen. 
What you're saying is, I am subjecting myself to this God. The word subject there really means to rank under. So you understand and submit to who your authority is. God created the heavens and the earth. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Isaiah 40 says, to whom will you liken God? Will you compare him to anything else? I can't compare him. Back to what my brother said. He reached out where there was nowhere to reach. He's the one that caught something where there was nothing. He's the one that slung something into nowhere and told it to stay there. And it did. He's the one that took the hammer of his will and smote the anvil of his omnipotence and caught the sparks in his fingertips. And he flips them in his space and he calls them stars. And nobody said anything because there was nobody to say anything to because he's God. We are subject to that God. Even Job, in the midst of all his pain and pressure and loss of family and whatever, God sets him down and says, Job, Job, where were you when I stretched out the canopy over the earth? Where were you when I hung the stars, Job? And Job says, man, I speak as an idiot and a fool, man. I'm so sorry, God. I didn't recognize who you were. When we start to recognize who he is, we will not ascribe to him things that are in contradiction to the very essence of his character. Get that. And a lot of people are ascribing things to the character of God that are inconsistent with him when we live out of the flesh in this feel-good kind of thinking. So he says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, which means I'm to be a servant of his. Here am I, send me. That one right there, this resignation piece, no, 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 track it. Is that an easy thing to pray before the Lord? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. It's not. Because anytime I, I, I honestly voice that for my soul, what I'm saying is, my kingdom be crushed, my will be gone. I don't think any of us wake up in the morning saying, my will be crushed, shattered. I want to see Tim just brutally crucified one more day where your will can come alive. The Holy Spirit is constantly pounding on me saying, you still a lot about your will. It's still a lot about what you want. It's still a lot about manipulation. It's still a lot about what you can get out of it. So when he says pray, And this resignation, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, that's a hard piece to pray. But he's given them a model. Write out your own Matthew 6 and 11, 1. Or Luke Luke 11. Write out your own prayer to the Lord. Take these seven principles and write your own prayer. Then he gets to the place of request. Give us this day, our daily bread, which we take for granted, which we ought to be articulating to God. Lord, I give thanks that I've got shelter and I've got clothing, I've got food. Thank you that you continue to provide my daily bread and my daily necessities. Thank you. I do consider the lilies of the field. They don't get out and work and toil, but look how beautiful. I consider the sparrows. You take care of them. You're going to take care of me. I just want to tell you, I don't take for granted all of your provision. And that's what he's saying right there, the request. Don't take for granted what God is doing. Give thanks at all things. And then he says, now, now this prayer's got repentance in it. There's the repentance in this prayer that he gives his disciples. He says, when you pray, pray, Father, forgive us of our sin. 
You're, you're telling me, Tim, even after 30 years of walking with Jesus now, this October will be 30 years since God saved my soul. You're telling me that confession and repentance and confession and repentance is a daily part of your spiritual journey 30 years into it? You're telling me that there's still flesh patterns that God's crucifying? You're telling me that there's still certain things you've got to repent and turn from every day? So when we pray, he goes, let me tell you, our Father who art in heaven, man, he's a relational God, but give him reverence for who he is. Then he says, you need to make a resignation of your will. And then he says, now you've got to understand the request, and now there's repentance. Is the repentant piece easy? It can be. But this next piece right here, the responsibility that we, that we have is hard. What does it say? Father, forgive us of our sin. That's something that we still get. As we extend the forgiveness to other people, as we continue to release debtors, one of the things that hinders people in the evangelical church as much as any is the ongoing, continued unforgiveness, bitterness, resentment that resides deep inside that heart. When you choose not to release another person or not to forgive another person, that's the reason the media was blown away with the vocals and the voices out of Charleston, South Carolina, when they stood there and said, you killed our mama, you killed my daddy, you killed my brother, you killed... But we want you to know in Jesus' name, we forgive you. The media has no concept what to do with forgiveness. But I believe these people's hearts had been bathed in the blood of Jesus Christ. And they authentically knew him. They didn't say, let him walk. They didn't say there's no consequences to your wrong and sin. They just said, we want you to know before God, we forgive you. Jesus is hanging on the cross and he cries out, Father, for Stephen is being stoned and he looks and he sees the glory of heaven and he says, forgive him. But I'm telling you right now, you cannot jog through this prayer without getting to this piece saying, repentance is me turning, but now there is a responsibility to say, I want you to know I love you and I forgive you. Didn't say I trusted you. Didn't say I wanted to go on vacation with you. Didn't say I wanted to party with you. Didn't say we were going to hang and we were going to be boys again. But that's part of this prayer. Is that an easy one? No. But I want you to get to the end, the resolve. Lead us not into temptation. Literally means leave us not in the realm of temptation. Lord, please don't let me drift to the realm of temptation. Remember, temptation defined last week is where we're enticed and lured to gratify the flesh and self. And that's what he's saying. Lead us not. Leave me not. Lord, please give me the power and strength to avoid those arenas that will take me down. And we talk so much here about watching your playgrounds and your playmates and your play toys, but watch where you play. Watch the rim. Watch the arena. Watch your associates. He goes, don't leave us there. And then he goes on to say, deliver us, deliver us, deliver us. Why? And what that literally translates is this, for your name's sake. He closes this prayer by saying, whatever you do, 
Do it for your name's sake. You're God. You're holy. You're in the heavens. You transcend where I'm at. Now, Lord, 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 that's who you are. Now, I've got a responsibility and a resolve to make. Lord, I want to see my will shattered. I want to see my will gone. I want to see the holiness of the Lord prevail. But deliver me for your name's sake. Not deliver me so that I don't get in trouble. Not deliver me so I don't spend any more stupid money. Not deliver me so I don't have a needle stuck in my arm or a bottle stuck in my hand. It's not about you and me. Deliver us for your name's sake. Glorify yourself however you want to for your name's sake in me. When we get there, that model prayer, boom, it just comes alive. Now, many of us have kind of jogged through it and said it, but now we've taken some time to contemplate the power in that prayer. Do it for your name's sake. Glorify yourself through this old robe of flesh and clay, but do it for your name's sake. Let's pray. 